I'm a high feeler, so I love energy, love that big time. I, uh, before we even start, I just want to pray, and, and uh, we, we, we've been praying a lot about this series and this, even this idea of joy. And uh, so before we begin, I just want to pray. Uh, Father, we ask you that you, uh, you are the source of joy, and uh, even the fruits of your spirit begin with love, and the second one is joy. And so I ask you today, because I know this, here's what I know about the world, it's hard, and it takes joy and it steals it from us. And so, Jesus, we're looking for you. We're looking for anything else. It's like temporary. We're looking for you. It's eternal. And so I just pray in this place right now that you would cover us. Um, God, that you would just grant us a glimpse of fulfillment and understanding that joy is in you, Jesus. And so may you bless our time. We, uh, we humble ourselves before you. We are not powerful outside of you. So may you bless in your name. Amen. Um, I, uh, as we do that, I'd love for the ushers to come forward. We'll do the offering. And, um, and if you're a guest here, we love you. And we're really glad you're here. We mean that. Like we, we care so much about those that are coming and exploring their faith or looking for community. And we are not perfect by any means, but we love you. And we'll put our best foot forward. So thank you for being here. For those that are generous and give, thank you. And I always say this, you're not, you're not pouring into just programs, you're pouring into people. Uh, it was so beautiful this past week. We had uh, an amazing women's night, right, ladies? Uh, hang out Tuesday night, celebrated. And then, guys, we crammed together 62 of us from Kensington Clarkston in a room. And, man, it was unbelievable. The guys were, like, chatting and sharing their hearts. And it was just, I'm telling you, fellas, man, give the fellas a big hand because that stuff does not happen normally with guys at all. And it was unbelievable. And I'm just, like, super grateful for the God is at work and moving. And uh, joy changes the atmosphere in a room. Joy changes things. There's something about it. And, uh, and for us, I, I was reminded of this a couple of weeks ago. My wife had reposted and shared something online. Uh, and it was a picture, and it was of my, my Noah, who's going to be 11 tomorrow. He's three in this picture. <laughs> He's got, he goes to bed with a clip-on tie, man, under on his head. Like boys, right? It's just so funny, man. Like no reason. Nobody forced him to do it. And I, joy is such a, an amazing thing. It, it really does shift things. It, it's interesting, like I said, I'm praying that in the fruits of the Spirit, there's love and then there's joy, you know, and the order of that. Like, why is that? You know, and it's, it's interesting how joy can shift the whole atmosphere and, and, and makeup of how we feel about things in a room. There's a story of, uh, and I shared it a couple of years ago, but I want to share it again. It's so funny. Story of uh, an older couple, and really old couple, and they, uh, they had gone into uh, their church, and every Wednesday they would do a time of just like prayer requests and praises, like prayer and praise, right? And it's a small little country church, and so the pastor gets done with his devotion or message, and then he says, hey, as normal, does anybody have any prayer requests? Does anybody have any praises, right? And the lady said, I have both. And this older lady, she stood up, and they brought her the microphone because she couldn't really hear her, and, you know, so she began to talk. She said, my husband, Stan, he got in a really, really, really bad motorcycle accident. Everyone's like, oh, my goodness, you know. And, and um, she said, so we're, I'm praising him because he's still alive, but we need prayer because he's got a long recovery. And uh, this recovery, they said, it's going to take several months. And this car accident, he got hurt really bad, and they had to do uh, reconstructive surgery for almost seven hours. Like, we didn't know if he was going to live or die, you know, in this thing. And everybody's really leaning in at this moment. And, and she says, she says, yeah, he, this bad motorcycle accident that he hurt his scrotum really bad. And every guy in, in the place all of a sudden began to cringe like this, right? And, uh, you know, and then the pastor is at this point saying, dear Lord, what did I ask for in this prayer request praise time? And the lady's going on. And finally, Stan, her husband, stands up. And every guy goes, oh, you know, as they look at him. And Stan comes all the way forward, and he turns around, and he grabs the mic from the pastor. He said, it's not scrotum, it's sternum. 
sternum. I've told you. <laughs> Every guy in there is like, whoo, you know. <laughs> Everybody erupts in laughter, man. Just, it's amazing how joy, even a moment of joy, can begin to shift things around. And there's something powerful about it. And I, as I do that, it's so funny. I was talking with Davey earlier. Davey goes, are we allowed to say that? I'm like, I'm just repeating something I heard, you know. Uh, but joy changes us. It disarms us. It, it, it refuels us. It, it gives us a really unique sense of optimism in a way. It allows us to see the world a little bit different, even if for a moment, if we're in the middle of chaos or whatever's going on in your life right now. Joy begins to be something that it's infused inside of us. It's interesting that happiness and laughter, this is like a response. It's a reaction to things that take place around us. Joy is different. Joy, even if you look it up, it's interesting. Webster says it's something inside of you that radiates. It's like a fuel source of bringing goodwill, of bringing well-being. Even in the middle of the periphery, this is all the stuff that's going on around us. Relational tension, financial tension, health issues, right? Whatever it is, that's circumstantial. And by definition means it's temporary. But this concept of joy is eternal. It's different. It's something that's in here and it radiates out of us. And it's interesting, uh, there's, a, there's a book I'd spent a lot of time a couple weeks ago with Dave Wilson, our Orient Campus lead pastor, talking about this series. And he does, he and Ann do conferences and they talk all the time, uh, whether it be on marriage or in family or in personal relationships and things of that nature. And uh, they, had, they had actually met a couple guys and their wives. They had done a book called The Four Habits of Joy-Filled Marriages. The Four Habits of Joy-Filled Marriages. And in this, too, Dave wanted me to really emphasize that it's not just for marriages. This is for relationships as a whole. They emphasized on this because they're part of the Family Life Radio Network, and they do these conferences. But this was for all relationships. And these authors, they, uh, I took an excerpt out of the book. They really worked with a lot of psychologists, psychiatrists, and neural scientists too to understand the brain and match it up with like biblical understanding of how this works. And here's a quote from the book. It says this. It says, the deepest, most primal part of your brain is like a magnet. It is often called the attachment center of the brain. Okay, when you're developing in the womb, I was reading this in the book. This book is unbelievable, by the way. I'm going to encourage you. We put it back up. We'll put it online. It's on Amazon. It's like 10 bucks. Unbelievable. And uh, when you're developing in the womb, that this part of the brain that begins to form right there from the bottom up, this most important part, uh, is actually it causes you to have this idea of needing attachment, needing to be connected. You guys have heard stories about kids. They've done tests where like kids that are touched and loved and cared for, when the real little infants do better than those that are left alone and not loved, not cared for, right? It says this, you come out of the womb craving attachment. The force inside of you that wants to bond with others is so deep that your brain's perspective, nothing is more important than attachment. As a result, no pain is greater than attachment pain, and no joy is greater than attachment joy. This is why loss hurts so bad. This is why that when we long for something, we go so far, right? This is why we're willing to cross deserts, swim over seas, wait time, endure pain, whatever, before the attachment, right? One of the key discoveries, says this, of brain science and neuroscience today is that Freud was wrong. They really point this out, and they've had a lot of proof on this, that he taught that the fear of death and desire for sex or pleasure were the most powerful motivators in the world. However, the discovery of the brain magnet has shown that attachment, specifically 
Joyful attachment is the most powerful motivator in life. Joy attachment, this joy bond. This is really true. And you know this because we look for it from this idea even when we begin to fall in love and we look for this in marriage and you don't have to be married long to discover that pure joy and all your joy doesn't just come from that alone. Like, uh, look around for a minute. Uh, ladies uh, in here, is your husband or significant other or fiance or boyfriend, have they ever let you down? Raise your hand. It's all right now. You can do it. It's okay. Look at it. Look at it. Guys, if you're asked this question, do not raise your hand at all, okay? Isn't that funny how that works in the room? It is what it is, right? And so, but there's this idea that we, we search and we look, and then we goes a little bit further. And, and Dave was sharing this, and he said, you know what? It's crazy. After 40 years of marriage with Ann and I, he said, we really in the past couple years have discovered a joy that's so powerful. And he goes, I'm telling you, man, he goes, I'm, it's centered around Jesus Christ. He goes, all this other thing is peripheral, but it's centered around God. And it's interesting when we say that because when we think of God, right, often what pops in our mind based on your, your church history, your experience with God, your experience with religious people, your faith walk, whatever that looks like, often we can see a picture that might look something like this, right? Where Jesus is like, don't be drinking too much tonight. You know what I mean? Or uh, you shouldn't have yelled like that. Or road rage is not good. You know what I mean? You're, you feel like you're being watched all the time, right? Um, it's there, and it almost creates kind of a fear bond. The author talks about this. It's like a fear bond. It's the fear of rejection, the fear of getting caught, the fear of from the people that are really close to us, that love us, that we're looking for affirmation from, that we want to be attached to. But the nature of how we go into those relationships begins to be built on fear instead of joy. It's opposite, and so it's always one, like, we don't want to let anyone down, we don't want to mess up, we're tiptoeing, we're, we're, we're ashamed, we're hiding, we're, we're pulling in, and the author's saying that it can't really be like that, and it's interesting when you actually think about Jesus, like, have you ever considered, like, what if Jesus actually, the picture we should be having is like this, right? Be like, it's supposed to be one of laughter, and of joy. And there's something interesting. When you study the scriptures, no doubt about it, Jesus is a powerful teacher. He's authoritative. I believe he's the son of God, right? He's the Messiah. He's the sent one. He takes away the sins of the world. He's all powerful. Like he is the expression of the fullness of the Godhead. This is Jesus. And he's all human too. And he's bringing fruits of his spirit, love and joy. And it's amazing when he walks in a place, he changes the room. He just does. It's, it's something unbelievable about who Jesus is. And it's interesting. I want to take you just through a couple scriptures. Like, for example, in Psalm, the psalmist David says this. This is what I know about God. He says, for you to taste and see that the Lord is good. There's something good about God. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. David's saying, I know the world's tough. I get it. I understand it. But there's something good about this God that we're preaching about, that we're talking about, that we do Bible basics about, that we teach in K-Kids about, with student ministry about, from the stage about, right? There's something, David's saying there's something good. And he says, you have to taste and see for yourself. Don't take Jeremiah's word for it. Don't take our word. Don't, don't, don't do that. Like actually taste and see on your own, right? Somebody can talk to you about a food, how good it is, but you have to do what? Try it for yourself, okay? The psalmist goes on. He says, you make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The psalmist says, there's something interesting about this joy I've discovered. It is not temporary. There's an eternity to it. There is something eternal and powerful of substance. It is of spiritual nature, this joy. It is powerful. It is, it is something that I can't get on my own or in this world, but it's something, God, that you bring to me. Hebrews says, you love justice and you hate evil. Therefore, O oh God, 
Your God has anointed you, pouring out the oil of, what's that word? Joy on you more than anyone else. He says, you get this joy. It's coming from you. That's where it is. Nehemiah, I love this. Nehemiah in chapter 8. Nehemiah is an incredible biblical narrative about the providence and the power of God pursuing people, uh, unifying people around himself. And it's, it's an unbelievable story. We don't have time to get into all of it. But the people at the end of it, when God does this miraculous work, he brings these walls back together. He secures Jerusalem once again. He creates the city. He reestablishes it through Nehemiah. And, ne- and Nehemiah notices all the people are crying. And he's like, wait a minute. He's like, wait a minute. He's like, don't you know the joy of the Lord is our what? Strength. He's saying, don't you get that? I love this. That um, John Piper says this about it. He says, it's a remarkable point delivered to Nehemiah and a people who are ravaged by war, weakened by insecurities, and constantly reminded of their own fragility. Have you ever felt that and been there? You're reminded that life is a tough place. Have you, have you ever been there? Me and you. Okay. So we, we know. We, we're working on right. The rest of you what the heck is going on? We need to follow you guys, right? But there's a fragility to life. There's a temperate nature to it. There's something that we recognize that we can ignore until it hits us in our face and it's like hard. But you're saying, we, we, I, I get this. He says, and this is where we find our strength. He says, this is where we get it. For life, for pain, for trials, for marriage, for child raising, for missions, for everything. The strength we need for this life is found in the essential joy of God. You will never, I love this statement, you will never be spiritually stronger than your God is happy. Ever. Why? Because our strength comes from the Lord. The joy of our Lord is our what? Strength. Our ability to breathe and move and understand. Like there's something about joy that animates our soul. It's a powerful thing. Joy really does, can shift. It shifted a nation for Nehemiah. It can shift a community. It can shift a marriage. It can shift a relationship. It can shift things into a new perspective, into God's perspective for your life that you can never understand. Say, we're spending a lot of time on this because this is of the utmost importance because we're all looking for joy all over the place. We're looking for happiness. We're looking for relief. We're looking for, it's all temporary. Like, it's not bad at all. It's good but it's temporary in nature. And these authors of these scriptures are saying they're pointing back to this person named Jesus. And I love that we find this. He says, where does joy come from? There's a Christian counselor that had said it's an inside job. It doesn't come from the outside. It's an inside work. Paul says this, to rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. You know what's interesting? I said earlier, Happiness and the laughter, those are responses, those are active, those are amazing. But this joy is this inside work. Paul's in prison writing this letter. How is he doing this? Are you kidding me? How is he, how is it, how can he have joy in the middle of imprisonment? And some of us are sitting here right now and we have our own prisons. We're, we're, we're prisoners of, of doubt, we're prisoners of shame, you're a prisoner of guilt, you're a prisoner of insecurity, you're a prisoner of things. And Paul's saying, in that prison, like joy is possible in the Lord, in Jesus. He begins to radiate and do something unbelievable with you. He just does. He does it right through you. And Paul's saying, it's so powerful that I can write this letter to you from prison, being beaten and hurt. Like, how are you doing that? Are you on drugs? Like, nope, Jesus. Like, it's Jesus Christ. I love this, to be considered that joy is optional. We must choose it. Choosing joy Choosing Jesus is really choosing joy. 
Choosing Jesus is really choosing joy. First comes from Jesus. These two things. It's so interesting that even in Luke, Luke describes him, says, he says that, behold, like the angel says, that I bring you good news of great joy, right? What is this? Jesus is going to be born in the world. Like joy is coming. Like his name's Jesus to an oppressed people. This is amazing, right? I love this. And I stop and I consider this. Galatians 5, 22 23, it says again, but the fruit of the Lord, the Spirit, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And against things, there's no law. There's nothing that can come against or steal or take away that kind of joy when it's centered around Jesus Christ. So here's where this book, I want to spend just a few minutes giving some practical application because joy was from Jesus, but joy is also this whole concept. God's like, love God and love others. Love God and love others. Joy comes from Jesus this way, this vertical way, and this horizontal way. We were designed, we were wired to experience joy in all of our relationships, right? From the most intimate ones to the peripheral ones, like God wired us to have joy be part of that. And so they, through this book, Four Habits of Joyful Marriages and Relationships and the Community and, and Parenting and Friendships and Workplace. Like, these are ways that you can actually begin to bring joy into those things. Um, and again, it starts with Jesus, but this is like kind of a practical plan of creating a pathway to do that. And say, oh, what do you mean? Like this. Like, nobody ever what? No, nobody ever plans to fail. They just fail the what? Come on, guys, I need a little more interaction than that. Nobody ever plans to fail, but many of us do. We probably said it low because we, we've been those people, but, but we totally fail the what? Plan. We just don't make a plan. We don't take action. There's no challenge, no change. It's all talk, no action, right? Like, I, I mean, th- this happens. Like, it's, it's in your budget. It's like, we're going to do this. 2020 is going to be an incredible year. We're going to do this, this, this. Where are you at in that, you know? Like you actually have to take action. Your faith has to have works. It's got to have something actionable outside of it that's an expression that's movemental from what's going on in here, okay? So if you have all the joy you need, so much it's overflowing and you got to give it to people away, you're good, you tune me out. But if you are sitting here and you're like, I'm in need of a little bit more joy, you know what I mean? In my most important relationships, in my family, and all these things, in my workplace, I'd love to bring in here, in my community. How many would love a little bit of extra joy? Like honestly, in these things, all of us, right? Like the ones that don't, you're amazing. You author a book, you're right, you know? Like, but for the rest of us, we're going to say joy starts with Jesus Christ, and then it radiates and moves its way through. So I'm going to do these, and I, can't, I don't have time to go through them in, like super extensively, so I want to encourage you to get the book right? Uh, we'll put them up online uh, later on Monday, but it's a really simple acronym, PLAN, right? Pretty clever, right? You got to have a plan, P-L-A-N. So if you want to write it in your phone, you want to write it in a note, whatever you want to do, plan. The first one, the author says this, really simple. You have to plan to play together. You have to play together. Like it sounds like child's play kind of doesn't, like you have to play together. Like work hard, what? Play hard. And that's the deal. And part of the play hard is you actually have to work hard at playing hard. Like, that's super important. You know, it's interesting that we're fearfully, psalmist says, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Like, the way we're wired, there's something fearful and an awe and wonderful and amazing about it. And even from the beginning of time and the narrative of God, like, we see God walking in the cool of the day in the garden with Adam, with Eve. They're hanging out. They're having a great time. Like, there's something beautiful about those relationships. Life is not all about productivity and get to work. And and there's nothing wrong with that. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But that's not the essence of it. There's something beautiful about the relationship of creating this joy in our life, this attachment. 
Like, it's interesting, the author talks about this attachment bond is a big deal. And those attachments take place not really like in a long day of work. Those tent poles don't take place because, hey, everybody, we're going to come home and we're going to rake the yard and mow, and then we're going to deep clean the house and make sure you get Clorox around the toilet, and we're going to go to bed. <laughs> like, like, that's good to do, but that's not where this joy is coming from. Like, you actually have to play hard, and you have to do some amazing things together. I can remember Marie and I, when we first got married, we went on a cruise. Where, where, where's she at? Where are you at, babe? Are you in, in the room anywhere? Oh, there she is in the back. She never knows to raise her hand or not. Uh, and I never know if I'm going to be in big trouble tomorrow or not. <laughs> like, depending on what I open and run my mouth in. But we were in this uh, cruise, another couple, and we stopped at all these ports. And there's one really cool port. They had this restaurant that oversaw, like, this kind of, like, watery area and river. And it looked to be, like, like, kind of a waterfall. My buddy Ryan and I, we go, dude, let's just jump in, man. And so all of a sudden, we, we like, run and we go, whoa, like this, just over the side of the thing. And then Maria stands up and she goes, Jeremiah! She's screaming, everybody in the restaurant's looking. And all of a sudden, Ryan and I stand up. We're in like three feet of water. It's like a four-foot drop, man. It's not a waterfall at all. You know, and everyone's looking around. I knew, and I'm like, this girl is adventurous. I like her. You know, like this is going to be fun. But there's something amazing just about that kind of adventure. In fact, Donnie, do I have, did that pick go through the one that we just went to a Pistons game last Sunday? And we've had so much joy, man with our little baby girl that we've had a chance to love and care for. Look at her little shoes. Can you see those little shoes? Man, I never knew what it'd be like having a little girl, man. It's so cool. With the boys, I'm always like toughen up or wrestle or headlock or suck it up. But with her, I'm like, what do you need? What's the matter? <laughs> you know? And it's, just, it's amazing, this attachment, this joy, these moments of joy. I, I get it. There are a lot of work to get to and there are a lot of work. But in those moments, I feel like in this pathway of playing together, God does something incredible. He just really does. I just, I love it. And so I just want, I want to help some of us move this because you have to make a plan. You actually have to say like, you got to make a date night or you got to do something with your family or you got to get that best friend on the phone and you got to do this, man. And so I just want to help. We've got a lot of families in here. So who has been recently married uh, September, to, who's been married in 2020? Anybody married in 2020 in here right now? Like recently, what about 20, fall of 2019? Anybody that married fall? Right, okay, what, right there? Okay, anybody else? Okay, we got a gift for you right now. We'd like run this to you, man. Stand up, raise your hand so she can see you real quick. When did you guys get married? November. All right, man. Congrats. So these, we got you two of the books. We want you to read these together, man. And we're just thinking like no better way to start off and joy. Who's been married, what about for uh, over 40 years? Raise your hand, over 40 years. 40, holy smokes. Okay, 42 years. Keep your hand raised. 43 years. 44, I feel like I'm an auctioneer. Wait, wait, 40, 43? 40, 40, 43, okay, anybody over 43 years in here? 43 years? Nope, standing up, my man. Wait, oh, I'm so sorry. Wait, over here, how many? 46, anybody can be, okay, anybody can be 46? Hey, you know what's crazy? You guys are going to Europe too, aren't you, man? You lucky dog, you. All right, give him a book. So, okay, what about this? What about those that have, uh, how many, who's got more than four kids? Raise your hand here, you got four kids, more, you got four kids in the back. Wow, what is going on here? Anybody got five kids? Anybody got five kids over here? Oh, right here? Okay. Oh, and can anybody beat five kids? We got five kids over here. Oh, no, five? Can anybody beat six? Do we have five and six? Six? We have six? Do we have six? No? Five right here. We got five here. Do we have to do it? Okay, do we have, and you do two. Oh, you, you already got a book. Put your hand down. Come on, you got can't be part of this again. Come on. <laughs> okay, here. So, so, do you have, so we just have two with five kids, right? Here right now? Up here too? We got to get more books. All right, Jill, I'm going to let you one figure this one out. 
Okay, so we got five here, five here, and then we owe some people some books too. Okay, so we got Judith, we got over here. You got two bags left, right? Okay, good. So let's go right here, let's go right here, and then we owe wherever in the back that we owe more books to. Um, Jill, if you can find them, and we owe them more books. Right here, you have five kids? Yes, look at, she's like, quit singling me out in this moment. I love that. And so, and one of them is the mystery bag, because one of them's actually got a gift card in it too. So uh, give them a hand, because that's crazy when you have five or more kids, man. You've got... You've got to have this plan. You've got to have this moment. It says like creating these moments. And you might be sitting here and saying, well, what do I do? What do I do? If I don't think any of that stuff's going to work. Because some of you are sitting here, and I've been there before too, where I'm like, none of that's going to work. Pray before you play. Go back to Jesus. Man, the author is so clear. He's going to, he's like, man, you could go back to Jesus. Jesus, choosing Jesus is choosing joy. This plan is important, creates pathways and opportunities to experience Jesus, but choosing Jesus Okay, so here we go, right here. Number two, listen for emotion. Listen for emotion. <clears throat> this is a big deal in plan. Playing together, listening for emotion. James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak, slow to anger. Proverbs, Solomon says with wisdom, if one gives an answer before he hears, it's his folly. Be quiet and listen. Stephen Covey says, you actually have to seek first to be, you have to seek to understand. You have to actually seek to listen and understand in this moment. And this, this happens, like, this happens with Marie and I. Sometimes once in a while, she'll call me, Pastor Jeremiah. And I know that's not a compliment. <laughs> I, I, I just know I'm like, she is not ready to tell me what a great job I'm doing here. <laughs> I can guarantee you that, right? And, uh, and, I'll, and I'll stop and listen because it'll happen all the time, man. We'll just, we'll, we'll get well and she'll say, I feel like you can't hear me and you're not listening to me. You're not, you're not doing that. And I'll stop, and the author makes this great point, and he says this, that did you know that in the right side of our brain is the relational part? And all of a sudden, for a lot of us guys, often this happens, our right side will shut down in an argument, shut down when there's tension. When your wife or, or a spouse or anybody in a you know, really serious relationship says, I don't feel like you're hearing me, I don't feel like you understand me, and all of a sudden, our, our left side takes over, and it begins to get the logical part of it. And it goes on. And he says, in those moments, those can be dangerous moments because we're missing what that person's trying to say. We're missing what they're feeling. We're not empathizing. We're not understanding what's going on. We're trying to resolve the problem. We're trying to fix it. Shut up. They don't want you to fix it. You know what I mean? They need you to listen in that moment. The author says this, that when we do that, we start narrating our brain. Well, you know what her problem is. You know what his problem is. And uh, my kid's always doing this. And we start to create this false narrative on the left side of her brain. Because the left side of her brain, according to neuropsychologists and scientists, it's the logical processor. It's trying to give narrative and words to understand this. And the author says this, narratives are powerful. What you believe about your wife or husband or significant other has a profound effect on how you feel about them. And so you actually have to do this. You actually have to do this. You actually have to stop and listen. Marie and I used to watch a show called Parenthood. You ever seen it from a couple years ago? And, and the main data thing would always stop, and he, he went through counseling and said, I can hear you, and I see you. And anytime the tension's high, I lean in, I hear you, and I see you. And here's the trick. Even when she pushes back and says, no, you don't, I said, no, 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 I hear you. And I see you. <laughs> and I'm trying, I'm working, I'm trying. I'm, I'm a simple guy and I'm trying to understand and feel what she's feeling. She doesn't want me to resolve anything in that moment. 
And then actually, super important, actually, listen. The, fi- the next one is appreciate daily. This is a big one, and we're going to get to the end here. Appreciate daily. This doesn't mean like, thanks for what you're doing, thanks for doing the dishes, thanks for working. I mean, those are good things, but really appreciate with words, with action, right? Proverbs says that the tongue has the power of life and death. It has the power of life and death. Words, I heard this, words shape worlds. The words that come out of your mouth, the actions, like they, they actually shape the worlds around you. You know, I've seen this done extremely well, and there's all different lo- love languages. You can, you can look up the five love languages, and whether it's acts of service, words of affirmation, physical touch, all this different stuff. But as long as you're actually doing that and you're appreciating. My father-in-law, uh, my, I grew up without a grandpa. My mom's side, I never met him or didn't have a relationship. My dad's side didn't. But Maria's grandpa, Papa, and we talk about him all the time. And in fact, right around this time of the year is coming up on his anniversary. Because remember, Noah was just, Noah's going to be 11 tomorrow. And he was being born and that happened. And you would always talk about what an amazing guy he was. And you would love him and care about him. And what's really incredible is if you met Papa sometimes, he, 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 he was a cool guy, but he had an opinion, you know, about things. But he was this amazing man. And I noticed the more that you did that, when I grew up that, the more that you would, you would bring him into the middle of our family and you would affirm him and love him. He became this amazing grandfather, man. He really was. He was this amazing man. And, and the words that you spoke about him, Rick, they became like the life inside of him. And I watched that. The way that you appreciated him as a father, cared for him as a provider, all those things, you acknowledged that. And it like brought it out of him. I saw that happen. It was an amazing thing. And when we speak things, they actually, they can come into existence. As we speak to someone and say, I really appreciate you, just who you are the most important relationships in our life. This final one is this. We nurture rest. Genesis 2.2 says this, that the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So then on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God, you have to understand, I'll give you an understanding of this. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work creating he had done. Now we often think that this is something that we really work hard and then we rest. This is different. God's creating everything, and now he's moving from this point of creation. And he's starting off creation completed, right? He's beginning it from our perspective, our human perspective. We're beginning from this moment. We're working actually from rest. That makes sense? You actually, you have to nurture rhythms. Have, have you ever felt busy in your life? Feel busy in this culture? You don't have to stop for more than two minutes, and you ask people, how are you doing? Busy. You, what's going on? Super busy. All the time. You can't experience that joy. You don't have that time with Jesus until you actually slow down and rest and reflect on who Jesus Christ is in your life. I want to read you a story. And today we're going to move into communion afterwards. Because this whole idea of joy is choosing Jesus is choosing joy. Choosing Jesus is choosing joy. And it says this, there's a naval admiral, William McRaven. You can look it up online, part of his speech. It's unbelievable. And he says this, he's speaking to a group of graduates from his alma mater, uh, from his basic Navy SEAL training. He says this, the ninth week of training is referred to as hell week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment. One special day at the mudflats, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of hell week that you paddle down to the mudflats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. And as the sun began to set on that Wednesday evening, my training class was ordered into the mud. You felt like life pushes you into the mud as the sun begins to set. 
not in a good way in your life. And the mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. Up to their neck. Have you ever felt like you're up to your neck in this? The instructors told us we could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Just five. And we would get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up. Eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and shivering moans of the trainees were so loud that it was hard to hear anything. He says, and then one voice, one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, the admiral says, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice, he says, becomes two, and two became three, and before long, everyone was in the class was singing, and we knew that if one person could rise above the misery, then others could as well. And the instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, as they sang, the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. He says, if I've learned anything in my time traveling the world and through wars and all around, it is the power of hope, and that the power of hope begins to start in one person. And he refers to Washington, Lincoln, King, Mandela, Jesus. One person can change the world by giving hope. One person, I don't know where you are today in your walk, and that plan for some of us could be helpful in your family, in relationships, if you're dating, right, uh, with siblings, I mean, right, in community, in, in your work, but it all comes full circle to one person. See, Jesus steps into our life. He steps into this world, man, from heaven. He takes heaven and he brings it to earth. And he brings it here and says, I know you're struggling and you're in the mud up to your neck. He says, but I'm coming for you. And Jesus begins to sing in the face of all this. He begins to sing and he moves forward and he's singing the song over, Scripture says in Zephaniah, that he loves us, that he cares for us, that he's with us and I can bring us joy. And choosing joy is choosing Jesus. Choosing Jesus is choosing joy. And we want to do this in this moment. We want to be reminded of that in a personal, intimate way. And I want to ask the ushers to bring the elements forward of communion. Just start passing them out. Everybody start passing them out. And we're going to take these together. So please just start passing these out. And I want to read you some scriptures as we do this. And it's interesting because you find this moment of communion, right? Communing with God. And say, where does that even come from? Like, stop and think about it. Like the Last Supper, when Jesus finally does this, he's with his disciples. He's with his disciples. And he's sitting there with them, and he's feasting, and he's eating dinner, and it's this Last Supper. But they don't know that. They're unaware. We have a vantage point of purview that they're unaware of. That he's coming to do something incredible. It wasn't just a meal. It was going to be a meal that they could feast on for eternity. It was going to be something that they could drink that would make them family. And he comes there. And he has this last supper and he's leaning in and he begins to say some things. And I want to read these to you. It says, now as they, that's Jesus and his disciples, were eating, Jesus took bread and he looks up. It's one of those moments at the dinner party when he looks up and everybody leans in. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And he said this, he says, take and eat. This is my body. They're thinking, what? This is, he goes, this is my body that you're about to eat. He says, take that. See, what they didn't understand is his body was going to be put on a cross. He was going to die. His brokenness for their brokenness. His brokenness for your brokenness. His brokenness for my brokenness. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to him, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
He's saying what I have to go do, you don't understand yet, but you're going to. He's saying that joy begins with me, that love, I'm the source of forgiveness, I can grant it, right? Mercy, I can get it. In the middle of your mess, if you're in the middle of mud up to your neck, I'm right there with you. I'm singing over you. I'm singing with you. I'll be in the mud with you. I'm right in the middle of that moment. And this sacred moment seems so simple that we eat bread and juice, but it's something sacred about this moment that we are recalled to remember, to relive inside of us, that Jesus Christ inside of us, like he's the one that brings us joy. He's the one that transforms marriages. He transforms us from the depths of doubt and depression into the daylight, like he does that. Paul says this about it. Because there is one bread, he's referring to Jesus, one bread. We're all different, but one bread. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Paul says that even though in this, there's this one little piece of bread, this represents the body of Jesus Christ, that all of us from different backgrounds, different problems, different hurts, different issues, we come around the body of Jesus Christ. And this blood, this covenant, this was a new covenant made to mankind. This is so important. This is not a covenant made on religion or try harder or perform more or if you get your junk together or if you do, this isn't this. This is, a, this is a relationship forged by blood from Jesus Christ saying, I love you. I care for you. I don't care if you mess up. I'm still with you. I don't care if you've done the craziest thing in the world. I'll forgive you no matter what. I don't care if everybody's left you out to hang out to dry. I, I'm going to stand by you through thick and thin. I am with you to the end, to the ends of the earth. I am standing by you. Like, man, this is a relationship I can get with, right? Jesus is saying this, my body, my blood. As we do this, I want you to do this, and then we'll pray. By his body, the brokenness of our lives can find healing through what he did on the cross. On the cross, he, he took everything in this world that we've ever done, that's been done against us, and he took it upon him, and he offered us mercy in exchange. And the blood that was shed, this blood forgives us of our sins and it does something miraculous too. It makes us family. He adopts us into our family, into an eternal family. That no matter what we do, man, he's with us. So most of you have this. We do this in remembrance of him. To his body, we take and remember. To the blood that he shed for you and I, out of love we drink Jesus may we be reminded refueled may we know that if we feel distant from you Jesus you are so close you you broke your body and you shed your blood and here's the amazing part Jesus you rose again Thank you for rising again to give us new life and new hope and a new day and new joy. And you take and you take our ashes and you create beauty. You take what was stolen from us and God, you renew it and give us new joy in a new way that we couldn't even imagine. And God, my prayer is that we humble ourselves before your feet, Jesus, in this moment that you would bring and breathe and infuse the joy of your love inside of us in our community, in our relationships, in our hearts, And then we don't have to earn it. It's by grace. We just ask for it. Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. You are the risen, most powerful king of the universe. And you love us. And I'm so grateful for that. 
May you bless all these people here, all the kids in our ministry, all the people in our communities. Jesus, we need you. We love you. God, thank you for loving us first. Thank you for giving us joy when we can't figure it out on our own. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.